Welcome back to Feature Presentation. My name is Patrick, and this time I am not joined by Taylor, believe it or not, folks. I am joined by another Feature Presentation contributor. Uh, she is much better known, however, as the name behind her self-titled Substack, Beth's Exceptional Video Playlist. It is Beth. Welcome to the show, Beth. Thank you, Patrick. It's great to be here. Excited to talk all things horror um, yes. on Halloween and um, dive into the show with you. And thanks for having me on Feature Presentation. Um, and yes, I write for Best Exceptional Video Playlist, um, BVP, so you can also find me on there. And I will, uh, for the folks checking this out on our site, I will, of course, have all those links uh, down below. So it's, it's nice and easy. You can just head on over to her site. Um, she does a lot of TV, and I we, we were kind of bouncing back and forth. We wanted to collaborate and... I was throwing some titles out there. You were throwing some titles out there and one that kind of um, just, you know, ended up in the, in the Venn diagram, I would say uh, was this one, Mike Flanagan's new Netflix show, the fall of the house of Usher. Um, perfect for this spooky season. As you say, this episode's going to drop on Halloween. We're recording it on all Hallows Eve. Uh, so we're going to have a lot to talk about. Um, I want to start with, so this is my first Flanagan, and you said that you've watched um, bits and pieces of other shows. You finished some, haven't finished others, yep. but he is huge, especially in your world. You know, especially in the in the television streaming world. Um, I kind of cannot believe how much this guy works. <laughs> you just feel like there are only so many hours in a day, you know. But every year he's got a new, a new uh, spooky horror themed miniseries. And yeah, I'm just kind of curious your your journey with him up to this point. Yeah, so I mean, to be fair, I think he does a horror, you know, spooky series for Netflix, like, you know, every year for the past couple of years, and it usually comes out around this time. Um, so everybody's sufficiently spooked out. I think the first one that got on my radar was Haunting of Hill House. Um, it was adapted from a Shirley Jackson novel. And for folks who may not be familiar, has to do with a spooky house, Hill House. Um, and it's a story of a family um, that moves there um, and sort of how things fall apart for them. Um, so that was their first one. I caught glimpses of Bly Manor, which I also really liked, had a lot of the same actors. That's a, a Henry James, uh, based on a Henry James novel. And um, also enjoyed that. And I think the one that I took the deepest dive into is Midnight Mass, which came out last year. Um, I swear by that one. I think it kind of combines all the elements of tortured family, fraught relationships, and also religion, which Flanagan really, that seems to be a hot spot for him, um, also in the, in the fall of the House of Usher. So I think with this one in particular, Patrick, knowing kind of this was his ode to uh, Edgar Allan Poe, um, you know, and Poe was somebody I enjoyed in my youth. So I kind of felt like, all right, I gotta, I gotta give this one a try. And then, you know, just the familiarity of a lot of the same actors in it. Um, I haven't actually seen any of the adaptations that he's done for Stephen King. Um, I was curious to appreciate if you had like Dr. Sleep, for instance. Yeah. So I, before this, the only Flanagan I had seen was Hush. Um, yep. which is a movie that I really, I swear by, I think it's a really, really great home invasion thriller. 
Um, but sort of seems to be very unlike the other work that he does, because aside from uh, his wife, of course, being in a starring role, it's not an adaptation of anything. It's not Stephen King. It's not a classic spooky story. It's not a huge repertory casting. It's kind of one of the outliers in in his filmography. Um, I was very curious about Dr. Sleep. That was one of those, like, uh, you know, I'm just gonna be honest. I was one of those people that was like, okay, they're going to make a sequel to the shining. Like, yeah, I don't know. And I skipped out on it and I, and I wish I hadn't because, um, you know, the reviews were great and people really dug it. People totally called it a worthy successor, which I, I had a difficult time believing. And now I wish I had seen it on the big screen. And so, Diving into uh, Usher, I was like, why don't I, I'll just start at the beginning. Uh, and so I went back and I watched uh, Absentia, which I wrote about a little bit on our mm-hmm. site, FeaturePresentationVideo.com. And it's uh, it's an early film, you know, it's his debut. Uh, I think I wrote in the, in the review, like, it looks like it has a budget of, we actually lost money on this, uh, because <laughs> it does, it does not look good. I, I bought it on like an like an eight pack horror DVD set that I think I bought for like a dollar. I mean, it's not, but one thing I could tell right away. And we had, at this point we had seen three or four episodes of, of Usher, maybe just two or three that he's, he's definitely about vibes. Yeah. Right? He's really good with tension and pace and definitely likes not just mystery, but definitely likes when characters experience mystery. Um, definitely gets something out of characters doing investigating, playing the waiting game, finding things out. Um, and then uh, watched Oculus, uh, which was his next film, which I, as of right now is on Tubi. Um, and very similar thing, you know, uh, kind of a spooky whodunit characters finding things out. And I feel like mystery is almost, mystery sort of implies like some sort of, uh, you know, I don't know, investigator, you think of, you know, Her- Hercule Poirot or something, you know, this is the, the mystery of suspense and of, of tension. And you've got these sort of amateur investigators. And I wasn't really crazy about that one either, but I kind of felt like, okay, I get, I get what he's doing here. Um, he's definitely a master of vibe. And I think to your point, that's definitely why Netflix has him on lock and has him come out with one of these every year, because yeah, they're perfect for this time of year. In the past, uh, I had it in front of me. In the past uh, six years, he's made five of them. Yeah. Uh, so uh, he's definitely their kind of go-to guy right now. And I, yeah, I can see why. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm curious because I was thinking about this a lot. So I, I don't know if you're this kind of person, Patrick, but I often, um, and I pick up a lot of crap for this, but um, I often like to know the end of a story. Um, before I'm completely finished with something. So, you know, am I the type of person that, you know, reads the end of the book sometimes before reading the, the, the middle? Yes. So I mentioned this because obviously in this story, we know how it ends, right? And follow the house of Usher from the first episode, we know how it ends, right? Um, in terms of, or the, or the, what happens at the end rather, um, really the crux of it is like, okay, what went down, right? And, and taking us through it. So I was thinking through my curiosity and how I always like to know the end of something. And I was like, you know, did knowing how it was going to end affect, you know, how I viewed this? Um, and I can definitely say that I, I think it did. And I think maybe it 
did a disservice, even though I like kind of having those previews and spoilers sometimes and knowing. Um, I think, you know, the actual, okay, this is, this is their fate. Um, and that idea of how things were fated uh, in this particular eight episode series. Um, I don't know if it served the story. And I'm curious if you had similar thoughts as you were watching these episodes, like did from that first episode where you kind of know, okay, you know, spoiler alert here, but the kids die. Um, you know, is this somehow changing, you know, the way that your appetite for um, learning the details um, or, or were you just as intrigued, you think? I think that's a great question. And I think I have two parts to my answer. Yep. One is I don't have the, and there's a reason why you do the TV and I do the movies, right? <laughs> I don't have that like desire to hit the next episode button. I often really find that a lot of stuff is stretched out, I think, just to keep us on the platform. And I think it's all, you know, it's all the analytics. And I think it's, um, it's unnecessary often to the storytelling. I don't know if this story needed eight episodes. And that's probably, you know, already a downgrade. They probably wanted 10, you know, uh, uh, or at least the conversation started at 10. Who knows, you know, um, even eight seems like a stretch. I, I found this, I, this is always my go-to example. I've mentioned this on the pod before, so I'm sur sure some people are going to roll their eyes, but I, the last season of Stranger Things, I just found sort of unbearable because I loved that show. I thought the first season was brilliant. Um, but what was the season four? What was the last one? Um, it's basically two seasons in one. Yep. Every episode is a movie's length. Yep. I really just felt like we could have done like episode one, episode 10 and called it a day. Like I did not, it felt like a lot of filler to me. And so I say that to say this, this equally, not equally, no, nothing will be stranger things, but in, in, in the same idea, I think there was some filler going on here. However, because I never particularly cared about where it was going to go. And I don't mean that in derogatory sense. I think no. it's because we do know from the beginning how it's all going to end up. I was kind of able to just like appreciate the vibes and hang out with the characters that I like to hang out with. And there are a lot of really great character actors in this show that we'll talk about, I'm sure at some point. Um, and just like watch some really fun performances and kind of to our point earlier, like kind of just be in the Halloween zone as opposed to being like, oh no, what's going to happen next? <laughs> because I kind of felt like, especially at the end of episode two, and this is kind of going to be a bit of a spoiler conversation. I don't know why yeah. folks would listen to this without um, without watching the show first, or at least most of it. At the end of episode two, uh, when they're doing the Mask of the Red Death, yep, and which I think I think that that is probably the best scene of the show. At least it's my favorite scene of the show. Um, I went like, oh, okay, that's. I get it now. This is what it's going to be. Every episode, we're just going to build up to the fun thing that we do, and then we'll do it again, and we'll do that six more times, you know? Um, and I, for like a split second, I was disappointed, but then I was like, why Why does it matter so much? Like, I can kind of just like, oh, this is the monkey one. Like, I've read this post story. Like, let's do some crazy monkey stuff here. That'll be fun, <laughs> you know? Um, and so I was able to just kind of go along with it without... I don't want to say without feeling too invested because it almost seems like I didn't care, but um, without being too concerned, I would say. Yeah. I just realized as we're giving spoilers, I'll, you know, rewind us a little bit just in case there are folks listening that, you know, may not have the same 
um, proximity to the show. So um, obviously the show is the fall of the house of Usher. Um, It's, it's really centered around two siblings, Roderick and Madeline Usher. And it takes us from their childhood and sort of formative years and how they became who they became. Um, They built a pharmaceutical company. So if you think about um, Sackler family and just sort of the opioid crisis, um, there's a lot of themes around, um, you know, greed and money and pain and and what they sort of brought into kind of that consumer world of um, addiction. Um, So they, they tackle a little bit of that in this as well. Um, but basically, um, they kind of uh, tie their fortunes and desire to kind of um, become successful um, to also, you know, their, their future and their legacy. Um, and I, I don't want to necessarily give give kind of all the spoilers, um, but it um, you know affects their children as well. And so, um, another kind of interesting anecdote here too is that. Um, we find out pretty early on that uh, Roderick, who's uh, the, the brother who heads up um, Fortuna, the, the company, um, has, uh, you know, uh, suffers from a rare vascular disease that gives him, you know, dementia-like symptoms. And I think, you know, what's interesting here um, is I think Mike Flanagan's really good at trying, you know, having us figure out how much of this is an actual thing or how much of this is like mental health. Um, so for instance, you know, Roderick in, in, is seeing kind of um, the ghosts of his children in, in various states and it's pretty disturbing um, and scary. But I think part of that is also kind of, you know, for, for me as a viewer and I imagine others like trying to figure out like, obviously they're not there. Um, this is his condition. Um, but I think Flanagan, you know, um, and this was sort of in Haunting of Hill House as well and Bly Manor, it's like playing with, you know, your your sort of mind and your psyche in terms of like, are these things that, you know, are there actual ghosts around or is it just your mind playing tricks on you? Um, how much of this is sort of people suffering um, from, you know, could be like, hallucinations or things like this. And so I think he's, he sort of tiptoes that line. I think it's safe to say that, you know, there is some supernatural stuff going on. Um, and it's not just sort of mental health related, but, um, but it's definitely always kind of like a person on, you know, on the brink of, of losing their mind, it seems. So that's a pretty common, common theme as well. And I think one of the other themes, Patrick, I wanted to explore with you was um, this idea of fate um, and wh- whether or not, you know, um, especially in this, uh, the series, there was a lot around, you know, do, do the children sort of have choice um, in their death? And just to kind of take a step back um, in each of these episodes where, you know, they focus on a different child and, and their um, demise, um, there is uh, a raven slash uh, human um, played by Car- Carla uh Gugino, um, uh, who sort of tempts, um, tempts them with an offer to refuse, um, you know, going down the path that they're going to go do- down on. Um, and generally, you know, they, they go down that path. Um, but she sort of puts it in front of them um, uh, as a way of, you know, you, c- you can get out of this, right? But the question is, do they really have choice? Um, and is that temptation, you know, actually valid? So I was curious to appreciate what you thought of that. I think that, at least from my perspective, I think that everything is presented from this character as if they do have a choice. But I think her her very presence 
is this foreboding, you know, if, you know, the characters don't know this, but we as the audience know this, and that's all that we can go with. Her character is this, if she's around, it's over for you. (laughs) Yep. You know, um, she has chosen you next. And there are a couple scenes in the middle where she's sort of overlapping her various plans and like getting, um, getting different things underway at the same time. But, you know, really, as we said, each each episode is is this is going to be the murders in the room work one. This is going to be um, the Mask of the Red Death one. And so I think she's really uh, teasing them, I think. I think it's it's a thing about like and I, and I guess that plays into this idea of fate, right, where you sort of have this. Um, uh, uh, I don't know what to say fallacy, but you sort of have this idea that you have some control over your life and maybe you just don't. Uh, maybe you just do not. And maybe things are going to be decided for you and you do the good things or the bad things in this family, especially the bad things. Um, it's just going to end up the way that it's going to end up. And I think that kind of circles back around to that thing from earlier where we know how it's all going to end. Uh, they lay us out in the first five minutes. I mean, uh, 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 Bruce Greenwood is giving this, speech right away of I want to tell you how it all went down (laughs) you know Uh, and so we know from the start where it's going to go and if you know Poe you know how each of these stories is going to end up and and I appreciate that they went with some of the deep cuts too right Uh, we got the Ravens and the Red Deaths but we've got some other ones in there as as well and you kind of just like it's going to be how it's going to be I think how did you feel about that yeah, I think the what I really loved, and I think I'm, I'm sort of drawn to these themes of, um, you know, sort of different fates, right? If if you make certain decisions, like what path will you go down, right? And I think there's like definitely sort of like a determinism element of like the way Madeline and Roderick sort of sealed their fate um, with Verna, an anagram for Raven, um, in a human form. Um, you know, at the beginning, um, which we find out at the end, but so we, we kind of know they're kind of destined based on some of these decisions that they make, um, to go down a certain road. And I thought like one of the strongest scenes for me was when Madeline and Verna are having that moment. I think it's in episode seven, um, where they're just, you know, having the really expensive cognac, um, sitting on the the chairs that Augie and Roderick have been sitting on while, you know, Roderick tells him the story about his kids dying. Um, so, you know, they're sitting there and, you know, Verna sort of offers Madeline clarity, right? Um, and while I don't feel like we got a ton of clarity on Madeline, we definitely like, to me, there was a clarity that was um, given to like Roderick's fate that if he hadn't chosen um, this this life, which I think also was um, something his sister kind of egged him on towards. Um, It was definitely sort of, I don't know if we can say evil in that sense, but leading him to make morally ambiguous, like sort of uh, ambiguous decisions, um, sort of against his wife and his family. Um, So, you know, he's definitely capable of leading himself down, but I think having somebody who sort of justified why those actions um, in terms of how he was going with the company at that point um, were wrong. I, I think, you know, she sort of helped him understand that, okay, this is the way we get ahead. So I thought what was interesting is sort of, you know, Verna laying it out, like Roderick would have been a poor poet, but, you know, probably would have been happy with his wife, Annabelle Lee and, and the kids. And 
Um, I thought it was sort of poetic justice that Frederick Henry James, or sorry, not Henry James, <laughs> Henry Thomas um, from E.T. Uh, is a dentist, right? If he, you know, hadn't kind of gone on to be, um, uh, you know, the, I guess the, it reminded me of the guy from Succession a bit um, in terms of, you know, sort of that kind of entitled, uh, like, coked up uh, kid, um, son of the father. Um, And so I think, you know, this is definitely like, interesting to kind of explore that. And I I wish they kind of would have not necessarily given us all of those, like what would these people have been? But I think it could have been interesting to explore the light that the path that wasn't traveled. So I think that that whole fate um, and then, you know, obviously I think the other big theme, Patrick is around evil um and you know are these people is is roderick inherently evil um you know and is is evil come by the fact that they he made those decisions um or you know what sort of um what what was your take on the whole evil thing and and who was evil or were these people all sort of victims in some sense you know it's funny we were sort of passing notes so folks get a little inside baseball we were sort of passing notes back and forth before we recorded over the past couple of days and one of the things that i kind of highlighted in our notes and you disagreed with me about which i wanted to bring up is that i felt like they were a pharmaceutical company because that is the easy thing to do that is the obvious thing to do they are um uh some of our biggest villains in society right now, right? And we are in a very big eat the rich phase in our world. And the opioid epidemic is real. It is real. It is very scary. And there are people like these characters um, who make a lot, a lot of money off of people being very, very sick. And that's, you know, maybe the, the, the nicest way to put it. And, uh, we, everyone, everyone can agree <laughs> that those are bad people, <laughs> you know, and that is not a controversial opinion. And it kind of felt just a little to me, and, and I know you you do some more, um, you know, limited series, some more Netflix stuff than I do. It kind of felt a little algorithmic to me. It felt a little, who can we all agree is bad? Yep. Oh, okay. The, the one percenters, right? And we'll make them out to look like assholes because uh, that'll be really easy. They always they always put their foot in their mouth, check, problem solved, move on. And I never felt like we and I know, listen, at the end of the day, how much am I really going to be, you know, disappointed in, in, in this show wanted to be its own thing. And I appreciate that. But I never felt like we really got the like, these people are bad, bad people and they do bad, bad things. And, you know, you mentioned Succession. Succession, they're bad, bad people who do bad, bad things, right? They are they, – they kill people and, and, and they make terrible decisions and they, they leave people out on the street and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But they're running like a, a theme park and stuff. They're running cruise ships. You know, I mean this is uh, – this is drugs. Literally, it is drugs, you know. And I did not feel like the outcome of what they do was explored enough. I kind of felt like they just got their comeuppance because they should – and we're all gonna like rah rah that because nobody likes them. I think that's very well put. Um, I think maybe our, our back and forth. I was reading your comment a little bit differently. I do feel like if you go on Netflix right now, 
I mean, there's a new one with Emily Blunt, I think, as well, that just came out. Um, Pain Hustlers. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, and so I do. I feel like this theme is everywhere, right? And I, I do think they're an easy um, target and, like, something we can all agree that we find deplorable, um, the fact that they're making money off of um, people's pain. I also... I don't necessarily agree that they didn't dive into it in terms of the outcomes. I mean, I know sort of in that final episode, it was a little bit bizarre the way they did it, but where um, Verna's kind of having her reckoning with Broderick and they're in his, you know, fancy um, all glass window top office um, of the building. And there's, she's showing like sort of the, the fallen bodies outside of all the people that he's, he's killed over the years with the painkillers. Um, but I also found what was interesting, if you think about the one person that sort of, I don't want to say capitalizes, but like gets at least to to live a life that um, looks like it went to a better place, it's his, um, Roderick's wife, right? And she was the one that he really married sort of as a token to show, oh, look, she can take all the ligadone, which is the name of the painkiller um, that the company um, sells. And she was taking like an insane amount way above like what the actual, um, you know, allotted prescription and amount um, and then had to wean off of it. Right. Which would have been really difficult um, and painful. And um, obviously she makes the choice to do that. But I think at least they kind of show it's sort of like cheeky, but that like she sort of, you know, was the the successor of this. And ironically, right, because she was also an addict. Um and then I think, you know, the other thing in terms of um, another scene that hits me with this, and I, I know it was also interested to see what your thoughts were. I th- thought it was a little self-serving, um, but the very last episode, right, where Roderick and Madeline are having this discussion and he's poisoned her um, cognac, this really expensive cognac, and she's drinking it and she's sort of, you know, giving us kind of the rebuttal of, you know, hey, um, you know, everybody thinks we're evil, right? Uh, Because we're selling these painkillers, but what about the consumers who are taking them, right? And so she basically villainizes the consumers, the industry, um, you know, the, you know, she makes this comment about, well, if McDonald's sold, you know, kale salad, nobody would come, right? They, They sell, what do they think we're making here, you know, and everybody's buying it. So, effectively trying to redeem and um, justify what they're doing. Um, But I thought that was over the top. I was like, this feels super self-serving. I I wasn't, I mean, maybe it's your point earlier, Patrick, about this being way too long or stretched out rather. Um, It just was like that final episode, the last like half of it, I was sort of done (laughs) with a lot of the things. I I feel like we could have sped it up. I don't know that I needed Bruce Greenwood great as Roderick, but I'm not sure I needed like um, the Raven poem read. Um, you know, I think Verna um, hit every one of her, like the poems that she delivered. But so I think that there's, they, they definitely prolonged some of these pieces, but I just felt like that sort of um, didn't hit where it needed to hit to kind of like um, answer the call of like, you know, um, even if these two people are, or she's trying to, you know, continue the her justification of their choices, right? Because she was sort of the one to be the catalyst in the beginning in terms of then going down this path. Um, if you think I'm being unfair to you, Patrick, about Madeline, um, you know, please chime in. I, I've been thinking, you know, obviously Roderick makes his own choices and he was the one that chose to go down this path with her um, and actually said it first. So, so, but I'm just kind of curious in terms of, you know, your own thinking and, and who like of that relationship um, is uh 
is her sort of guilt higher, you think, or, or her sense, her responsibility in terms of, uh, you know, becoming who they became? Well, I think it's very telling that the, ex- all of the examples that you pull out are in the final episode. Yep. And, um, I don't want to say too little too late. I, I think that's a little dismissive, and, but they, they very clearly wanted these things to be undertones that, you know, uh, they, they wanted you to pick out yourself until episode eight, where they decided that they were going to be overtones. Right. And, um, I think that, the, and, and you're right. The last episode was 90 minutes. I mean, that's not an episode of television. I don't care what year it is. <laughs> that's not an episode of television. That is a movie, you know, um, that is very long and you're right. The last 30, 45, I, mean, I might even go as far to say 60 of that was okay. 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 And, and maybe it's the pessimist in me. Maybe it's the, um, the, the, the movie guy in me, but I kind of feel like Flanagan and I, and I don't, this, he has killed it. Okay. And I, I don't mean to dismiss his work in any way. But he has been very successful for a company whose job it is to keep you on their app as long as possible. And he's done a very good job of keeping people on the app. And I think as a result, I don't know how many notes he gets anymore. I don't know um, how many people um, are are um, uh giving him tweaks now he talking i'll bring this up a little bit later but i got a chance to see the first two episodes early and he did a q a after those first two episodes and he talked about this is like uh the first time he worked with a writer's room and uh it was the first time where it, it kind of became a much larger collaboration for things to get done and i found that really interesting because it kind of felt like the work of one person who wasn't being contained you know like baz lerman doesn't get notes anymore and that's how you end up with elvis you know um and it kind of felt this way and so i was surprised to hear you know that he was working with more writers than ever and so i I don't know if i have an answer to your question i feel like maybe that is one of the things that i'm like my head is spinning about just in like the industry in general is like are we okay with like not doing anything until the final episode uh, because we just want to keep hitting next episode and we want to get there. Um, I know that doesn't totally answer your question. Your question was more thematic, but I think that's kind of just like my gut reaction is um, I didn't feel like it was explored enough until it was like in your face. <laughs> you know, you cannot miss. If you missed it before, you cannot miss it now. Yeah, I think. I mean, I, I agree. And I think um, the other thing is I found myself – really wanting to go back to the past like and not the past of like you know a week ago but like you know essentially the first episode and the eighth episode give us some closure in terms of like what actually happened um when Roderick and um Madeline were like in their 20s right and um I think you know clearly we had to wait till the last episode to know how everything really played out um and and to take us back in time but I just felt like there was a part of me, especially with Anna, I think her name, yeah, it was Annabeth Gish, right, who played um, the mother, um, Roderick and Madeline's mother. And I remember, like, 
thinking, oh my gosh, like she can't just be in this like, you know, half an episode of the first episode. Like she's an amazing talent. Like clearly she's going to be in more of this. Um, I would have loved to kind of like see that more um, and kind of understand like, okay, yes, yeah, she had this rare vascular disease that apparently Roderick has inherited called Catacil. She was also fanatically um, religious and this kind of played into her um, also desire not to seek any medicine, I think, or care above, you know, her kids kind of caring for her. So there was, I mean, there was all kinds of like religious stuff there too. And just, I, I, I just sense that there was like more meat that we just didn't really, apart from her doing the, you know, very traumatic thing of, you know, they bury her after she dies and she comes up from the grave and then, you know, kills um, their, uh, you know, father. Right. And um, just to kind of play that back too, um, the kid's father ends up being kind of the head of this pharmaceutical company where um, Roderick and Madeline's mother work, um, uh, where, you know, she works there as a secretary and she's not married to him. And so there's sort of these illegitimate bastard children that he won't claim. Um, and I think that whole, obviously, that dynamic being very toxic and then obviously seeing your mother kill uh, your uh, father, even if he's not a very nice man right in front of you, um, and then sort of being on their own and then kind of starting, they're both working in the mailroom, um, Roderick and Madeline, even though Madeline is like this genius tech person and, you know, Roderick talks and does a lot of poems, right? But clearly a smart guy as well. Um, so I think there's just these aspects to, um, you know, their past that I really, like apart from just starting at that place where it was the present and these, um, the kids were dying and understanding the kids. I really, and I would have loved to kind of um, dive into that more, especially given that Annabeth Gish was uh, the mother. So um, I think that piece, I was, I, I, I don't know if I were to give notes, uh, that would be one of my top notes. Um, the other person that I think was underused was um, Arthur Pym, you know, Mark Hamill, um, who was playing a very different character um, from Luke Skywalker. And um, I thought he was just brilliant in this as kind of this really um, the lawyer who gets things done, doesn't ask questions, kind of like knows what he's doing, um, you know, doesn't really have too much of a moral compass. But I, I would have loved to kind of see him more in the scenes. Um, what about you? Like if, if you were to give notes um, to, to Flanagan, um, what would yours have been? Well, I agree with a bunch of things you said. I, I think Mark Hamill is a genius. I, I think he's really one of our great character actors, and I think that he doesn't get enough credit for that because a lot of what he does is voice yep. stuff. Um, but I, he's my definitive Joker uh, in Batman. And I, every, every you always know it's him, and I don't mean that in a he's repetitive kind of way. I think he just has such a distinct flavor and such a distinct feel. And you're right. Like he will forever be, you know, the first line of his obituary obituary, excuse me, will be that he was Luke Skywalker. Right. Um, but like, I, I really think he's, he's really, really talented. And I also, um, I, I, I agree. I liked a lot of the seventies stuff. Um, uh, Willa Fitzgerald, I think is a very underrated talent. She was in, um, a little women that they made a couple years ago. It was like a little women miniseries, and that will f now, especially after the Gerwig one, forever be forgotten. Um, 
but that's actually like it was actually like a really good show and i think it was a really good adaptation and, and she was really great in it and she was also in the scream show which like nobody watched except me which is why it got canceled and um was always sort of a highlight of that and uh and of course zach guilford who's one of these flanagan you know repertory guys now um you know everyone knows him from friday night lights but uh he's, he's always a welcome presence and yeah, I, I, I think to my point earlier, like I just liked hanging out with a lot of these people. I liked hanging out with Bruce Greenwood. I think he's a great actor. I think he was, uh, especially for the fact that he had to kind of step up last minute um, and, and step into this role. Uh, a lot of the, um, uh, uh, what's what I'm looking for? Not confrontational. The, the uh, confessional stuff um, was like the first stuff that he shot. He had like a two day notice or something. I mean, that's really, really great stuff, right? Um, that is a pro at work. But one of the things we talked about in our notes is he is given some terrible stuff to say. And I don't I don't want to pick on anybody, but I mean he really like I I, I wrote at some point in our notes, like the amount of times he says like utter crap is just like staggering. And um what was the line that you pulled? I couldn't even tell if it was a real line it, it or if was. you just like I, I, made up your own version of a line because it sounded like one of them. <laughs> I, I had to write it down on my clipboard because I was like, I, I have to capture this. Like he has said it. And, and it was when he's sitting down, you know, obviously he's doing the confessional with Augie, who's again, sort of the moral center of the show. He's the prosecutor. And he's just like, you know, you think, you know, you have no idea. Right. And so you have just no idea. Yeah. I mean, you're right. He got stuck with some real schlock lines. Like there's just some <laughs> of this stuff that you're just like, oh my God, I feel so sorry for you to have to say yeah. the line again and again. Right. Um, the fact that he kept ignoring, I mean, we get it at the end, but ignoring the text from his granddaughter, that I could, I couldn't shake that. I was like, yeah. take the... <laughs> take the text right um that was really painful but i you know so the six kids right i think i went back and i was like oh who would i have liked to see more of and definitely kate siegel i think she just oh yeah she killed it and i i will say that her episode even though i wasn't crazy about the whole like you know it was called murder in the room morgue it was third episode so she dies pretty early on um but wasn't crazy about the whole chimp attack heart like that thing that just sort of grossed me out um but i she had some really good monologues in that episode and i just think she's such a strong presence um i really appreciated that she was sort of this like pr whiz and kind of like took command in a way when the family was sort of like i don't know what to do and she just was like here's what we're gonna do and so i would have liked to see you know, in that same episode, her not be killed. Um, but unfortunately, she was killed in that. I think um, the rivalry with um, her sister, um, um, Victorine, well, that would have been nice to kind of see a bit more play out as well. So I think um, that for me was also kind of like, oh, man, um, I would love to. So so I think Murder in the Room Morgue definitely was at the top. And the other one was the very first episode, I think, because we got like the 70s stuff and then you know um like just a little bit more of the backstory that made it you know all the present day courtroom um you know prosecution of, of the company and um i thought the brilliant move and i i called it early on 
um, was the whole informant red herring that there's an informant in the family or informant in the company. I don't think they said family, but in the company who's going to testify against um, the family. And so I, I thought that was sort of an interesting thrown thing thrown in. And then it becomes a thing that all the kids are like sort of, you know, right. um, going after each other about and that type of thing. So I, um, I love that. And I love that. I kind of knew that, <laughs> that in the end there wasn't an informant, um, because I just thought it was such a great device to kind of show in just a really obviously unhealthy way, how that family operated. Um, and there's a really good line that I wanted to read to you. I think I need to find it. Um, but he says it, Roderick says it to, um, in his confessional, he says, I bombed them with money. They had no chance. Um, and he says this to Augie referencing his kids. Um, so is he just a crap dad? Is because he's who he is is he the crap dad because he makes this pact at the beginning or is it all of the above i i'm curious what what are your thoughts there um yeah i'll come back to this second i want to highlight a couple of things that you said yeah. one is if if you like kate siegel in this you gotta watch watch hush it's a great movie i would recommend it to anyone it, it also like single-handedly gave john gallagher jr like horror movie roles for the next five years which i thought was interesting um, cause he was like kind of a dweeby Broadway guy. Um, and I want to highlight Henry Thomas too. Uh, Henry Thomas, like we all, we've all seen ET. We all love ET. We covered ET on one of our pods a couple months ago. It's, it's a brilliant movie. Flanagan loves adult Henry Thomas. He's in everything. They are, they are seemingly best buds. I don't know if a lot of people feel the same way Flanagan does, um, I will include myself in that everyone, but um, I got a big kick out of the, out of him in this one. I think it's like very easy to like succession. We keep bringing up, but it's a huge show. It's very similar themes. He's, he's playing the Jeremy strong part. Yeah. Right. And I think it's very easy to like, Oh, well it's, that's how you do it. Um, but he does his, his, his own thing there. And I think um, it was definitely welcome um, to your question. You know, <laughs> I think that that's I think that that's kind of like the moral conundrum of the show. Like, you know, does what is the corruptor here? Yeah. You know, uh, is it money? Is it uh, I don't know if I would call this a corruptor, but is the fact that he really he stood no chance from the beginning? Are, are we meant to feel bad for this guy uh, because he is a bastard son whose mom got screwed over? I felt uh worse for mom than anybody in the whole show <laughs> you know i thought i thought um and then she definitely gets her come up and you know but uh uh that was the most i ever felt for a character and it happens in the first 25 minutes of um of the first episode i got to tell you that is a scene to watch with a bunch of of college students cuz they were they were hooping and hollering um and am i ever really supposed to feel bad for him am, am i ever supposed to find the source of the corruption maybe i am uh maybe that's something that they wanted us to get to right that at the end of the day we are all humans and and he in the 70s when he's played by zach guilford he's a regular guy who who likes poetry and, and wants to support his family and, and and wants to do the right thing and then he gets corrupted and worse and worse and worse and i i don't know i feel like you know once again succession wanted me to tackle the same things 
But I think back to my point before, I don't know how relatable these people are. I don't know if they ever really can be personable. I think uh, you can get so rich that I just cannot relate to you at all. I just can't. I can relate to the 70s guy. Um, I especially can't. I feel like I had a lot of <laughs> I had a lot in common with Zach Guilford. Um, I have nothing, nothing in common with Bruce Greenwood. And so I don't know. I just kind of felt like I, I had more fun than I than I cared about. Um, I don't know if it's the mystery because there is no mystery, but the mystery. Yeah, I can I can see that. I think um, I want to dive a little bit into where you watched the first episode. Um, I'm going to give a quick backstory because I thought this was really interesting in my research on Mike Flanagan. Um, so he was born in Salem, Massachusetts. Um, I was telling Patrick that I had the opportunity to go to Salem. I'm in the Boston area, so it's really not that far. It's just not something we do every Halloween, even though Hocus Pocus was filmed there and it's a whole town that's pretty much either dedicated to Hocus Pocus or the Salem witch trials. Um, but I basically, um, I went there over the weekend um, and went to an exhibit at the Peabody Essex Museum, which is the big museum in the town. Um, and they had an exhibit on the Salem Witch Trials. And so I thought what was interesting, and I don't know how much this has influenced Mike Flanagan or not, but the narrative I sort of understood from the Salem, which was, which was new, and, and maybe watching this um, series also kind of like has, has given me sort of a different lens for this. But you know, one of the narratives I think of the the Salem witch trial was, you know, rich families and established families um, kind of going after threats um, and eliminating them, right? And so whether it was calling people witches or, you know, coming after them in other ways, like, hey, there there's a land dispute. Okay, this person's a witch. Um, there was more of that narrative than I had ever realized. And so I, I thought it was kind of interesting given, you know, Flanagan was born in Salem, might have been a little steeped in some of these narratives, like how much that influenced, you know, whether it was the Putnam family or the Popes, right? These sort of older fa established families, because like this, this one and also um, Haunting of Hill House, right? Um, you get sort of these stories about sort of, you know, obviously Haunting of Hill House, they seem like a regular family and all that, um, but sort of these kind of family dynamics and um, struggling relationships and power and all of that. And so especially with this one, it sort of doubles down on a lot of the corruption um, and, you know, eliminating any potential threats, this type of thing. So I just uh, I, I thought that was an interesting tie in um, to some of his heritage. But I also, um, Patrick, kind of knowing um, how you had uh, had mentioned where you watched the first episode, I wanted to see um, what that experience was like, too, and, and give you an opportunity to kind of talk through that. Yeah, so um, he Flanagan went to Towson University, which is um, uh, right outside of the Baltimore city limits. And I live in Baltimore. Um, as folks who listen to the show know, we are we are DMV based. So, um, and also I want to come back to the Salem thing because I have some questions for you. Yep. But um, he is a very proud graduate of Towson, and every so often will. Uh, come back and show what he's working on. Uh, I think some of the first people I ever see Oculus were, were Towson students. 
I think some of the first people ever to know that he was working with Stephen King were Towson students. Um, he's definitely very generous at this time and, and, and wants to give back to his alma mater. And they um, they were screening the first two episodes uh, three or four days early. And we go and we feel like we're a million years old because um, uh, boy, oh boy, do those college kids have a lot of energy. And uh, and we go and we kind of sit in the back and they show the first two episodes. And um, it was a, it was a full house in, in, in a pretty big auditorium. And, you know, that's a, a, a crowd of students who want to have fun. Uh, they want to be thrilled and chilled. That's the crowd to see what that's why I often bemoan the Netflix thing of everybody's watching this at home. And, and God knows how many people are half watching it, you know, um, we should be seeing things with crowds, movies, anyway. Um, and, uh, and then he did a little Q&A afterwards, which was very – I think he talked for like – I'm not exaggerating. I think he talked for like three hours. Um, we, we ended up getting up and leaving at one point because um, it was past my bedtime. But he was very generous at this time and literally kept being like, I will answer any question. If a student in this room has a question, I will answer. Like I will be here all night if I need to. Um and that, that alone gave me a lot of respect for him and, and a lot of what he was talking about with the way that he worked, um, I, I gained a lot of respect for him. And the reason why we found out it was kind of on the DL is because Netflix kind of wanted it to be on the DL. I think he kind of twisted their arm and said, I really want to show this to these kids and I, and I want to use it as an educational opportunity for them. And they weren't really crazy with the idea of the episodes being out there early because they're Netflix. Um, but we were kind of able to sneak in there and very clearly one of the few um, – who were not students. Um, but I also felt like anybody could have learned something. I mean, I think we sat through like an hour of the Q and a, and, um, one of like the earliest questions was, Oh, Edgar Allan Poe, Baltimore connection. Right. And he was like, you would think, um, because that's pretty obvious because we've all been in the museum and the graveside. If you live in Baltimore, you've been, but really we're just working our way through the masters. And like, yes, I've obviously had this Poe connection and I, I uh, have always had this interest, and we have this local connection. But, you know, I've done the Shirley Jackson. I've done the Stephen King. It was time to, to dig into Edgar Allan Poe. And so, yes, I had a little bit of a leg up. Um, but but really it was how are we going to use his stuff to frame our show? And I thought that was really great that it, it is – I mean, obviously, it's an adaptation of The Fall of House of Usher. But it's not like um, – I don't know. I don't think any of his shows are stuffy, but it's not stuffy. It's not, it's not high literature. You know, I teach Poe to my middle schoolers and it's difficult, you know, it's, it's, it's archaic and we have to do the Raven because that's the most accessible one. And I can show them the Simpsons uh, version after, you know, mm -hmm. um, but I like that none of this felt archaic. It was, we're going to use the best moments and the best themes and the best poems Um to frame our show and make our show. Uh, and, and obviously he's a genius and a lot of what he writes about is mental health, right. Which, which you brought up at the top of the show. And, you know, he was, uh, I think he knew a lot more than we expected people to know at the time about that because of the life that he lived. Uh, but long story short, uh, yeah, it was just, it, it was time for Poe. And, and I thought that that was really fun. And, you know, I think that that kind of summarizes a lot of my thoughts is like, yeah, maybe I have a little nitpicky here and maybe I could have done for some more Mark Camel and a little less of this person. And I would have liked it to be six episodes, maybe by episode six. I was a little like, OK, OK, OK. But 
I think a lot of that goes away when you just go like, I just like Poe and I like, I like these themes and I think that these themes are strong and like, it helps when you're working with the masters. Like um, he gets a lot of credit for Stephen King adaptations and I haven't seen any of them. I'm sure they're great. And I'm going to, like I said, I only got up to Oculus, but I'm going to continue my, my Flanagan filmography run through, but it's Stephen King, you know, I mean, he's, he is one of the masters. Um, and so if you're working with the right stuff, you're going to make good stuff. And I think that he, he has learned that and he's definitely using it to the best of his ability. Yeah, I, I think for sure. I mean, it's interesting too, right? I mean, you mentioned Poe and, and sort of experience, you know, alluding to his own experiences, right? I mean, he um, was addicted to opium and, you know, um, alcohol. He died younger, right, than, than he probably should have. And so I think a lot of these sort of themes of, um, you know, what's kind of going on in your mind and, and the world, like obviously we're for him, something he was, he was struggling, struggling with. And so um, it connects into, you know, these characters, right. And, and each of the episodes and um, the other thing I was going to kind of put out there as well. And I was kind of curious um, to, I don't think we talked too much about this, um, but I will say you mentioned kind of Henry Thomas and, and whether you're a fan or not, we mentioned that, you know, he's, he's putting out a lot of the same cast, right. He's reusing kind of the same players from, um, show to show. And I think it works. Um, Rahul, um, Coley, who, um, played Leo in this, he played the sheriff, um, very different character in Midnight Mass. And I, he was phenomenal. Um, Zach Guilford also has a pretty big role in Midnight Mass and, um, as does Samantha Sloyan. Um, so I think there's, you know, some of the characters and, and actors you wouldn't necessarily, you know, that you might see them here and there, but not as maybe, um, prominently featured. I, I love that he sort of gives them these really meaty roles that are, um, you know, I, I think they do a good job. I will say it is, you know, it's still weird to see Elliot from ET kind of play, um, adult characters for me so that's something I'm kind of slowly like adapting to but this this character really worked I think in the show um and then you know as far as um the ghosts there's been kind of comments that like definitely this um series had less kind of gruesome ghosts if you will or ghosts in general like you're not necessarily seeing them in every scene um that worked for me I feel like every time I saw like these sort of like, you know, bloody, like macabre, like kind of um, ghosty looking uh, dead, you know, children around him. It, it was certainly like very jarring. And so I think for me, um, it, it kind of served the show a bit more not to see them. I think the things that were um, more disturbing in, in my mind in terms of the horror aspect of this um, were really around kind of the, the comeuppance things that we've, you know, talked about. Um, and then also just this idea of like the decisions you make and how they kind of lead to these outcomes and consequences that are sort of more, I don't want to say true to life, but things that are tangible. So I think those are more, I always find those a bit more disturbing, the psychological elements, um, than kind of the ghoulie kind of things. Um, but yeah, I mean, I will say that overall, um, the show, I, I didn't necessarily binge it and fly through it, um, but I am happy that I kind of stuck with it. And um, I, I stand by like favorite episodes being one and I think it was, yeah, episode one and three. Um, but I do think that, um, you know, 
he does a good job kind of keeping the pace of, you know, the characters and, and the development and fast forwarding us quite a bit at the end in terms of getting to the point. But um, I'm kind of eager to see what he puts out next in terms of, um, you know, the next year's uh, Halloween uh, treat. And um, yeah, you mentioned something, Patrick, too, about um, Bruce Greenwood that I wanted to follow up with you on that he was sort of a last minute substitute. So who was supposed to be Roderick? Uh, Frank Langella. Oh. And then he got in trouble as many people have in the past couple of years. Okay. And I, I don't know. I can't remember exactly. Flanagan was a little coy. I think he's, I do want to say I could be wrong. I do want to say that he was like, we filmed a little bit with him and then he had, had to step away. So like we were in it. Um, if they hadn't filmed, they were like about to start. And yeah, Bruce Green would like really like they had done um, Gerald's game together. And um, so sort of in the rep company, sort of not. Yep. Um, and I think he definitely is now after this performance. Um, and uh, and yeah, had it was like a very last minute change. Interesting. In fact, no, I. I OK, I'm not gonna say 100. I feel like 97 percent sure that he said that they filmed some stuff because he said that they had to like go back and do like a lot of big family scenes, which is like obviously really difficult, like getting everybody back together. Um, to that repertory point, like I and we we talked about this a little bit in our notes, and and we're wrapping, so I won't get too deep into it, but. I love this repertory casting. Like maybe I'm not the biggest fan of some of the individual players, but I think that this is like, you know, I, I have a theater background. I think that that's like the richest kind of theater. I think it's people who work together for years and years and years and, and develop a, a shorthand. And, and Flanagan talked about that uh, in this Q and a where he said, it's, it just makes things easier when you know each other, you know what people can do. You can write for certain people um, you can write to push them a little bit and they want to be pushed. You can give people that you think are really brilliant actors um, more runway than they've, they've had ever maybe, or at the very least in a long time. You mentioned Henry Thomas. Um, and uh, I, I think it's great. Like, I don't know, maybe I will never be one of the biggest devotees. I'm going to continue to check this stuff out and maybe I will change my mind. But at the very least, I appreciate the hell out of what they're doing. They are forming this this super group <laughs> you know who's gonna keep they're gonna keep adapting great stuff they're gonna keep uh, making great stuff um you know they've they uh are making a movie uh they're doing another stephen king adaptation a, a novella um they announced the cast it's all the same people um uh, i had it in front of me just really quickly mark hamill carl Umbley, kate siegel rahul coley uh there are more um that's just uh, Karen Gillian, who um, was an Oculus, um, and that's two backup Tom Hiddleston and Chiwetel Ejiofor. So, like, it's whatever that is, that's going to be fun, wow. <laughs> you know. So, like, they they know what they're doing, and so like maybe I'm not crazy about the Netflix model, maybe I'm not crazy about the eight episode thing, but like I respect the hell out of out of, out of the work that they're putting in, and they are they are putting stuff out. This Flanagan crew, I mean. All of these TV shows, which would be enough, plus the movies. He was talking about how he's working on The Stand, finally giving The Stand a faithful adaptation. Um, and so he is a booked and busy guy. And uh, that is enough. I have enough respect for him for that, but also then to like be that busy. But then like 
make sure uh, you know he talks to college students and he he wants to pass on as much as he can. Um, whatever I think about the work, I really really like him as a person and as an artist. Yeah, for sure. I think um, the one person we didn't have a chance to talk too much about, but I was just like so excited to see her here because I feel like I haven't seen her in something in ages. Um, she's I know she's still acting, um, but Marion McDonald um, playing Madeline Usher, I think she kind of like knocks it out of the park. And I really enjoyed just the like the seriousness, the badassness of like her character um, and how she pulled it off. So I think, you know, Willow Fitzgerald does a great job as the young Madeline, but um, I equally enjoyed kind of Mary McDonald in that role and seeing her. So when you were rattling off the names, I was like, oh, maybe she'll be in a future um, Flanagan uh, production. She's a good addition. Okay. I want to wrap by asking you about Salem because I know that you said you're close by, but from what I've gathered, at least through, you know, the osmosis of social media is that that town has become like tourist trap from hell. And it has just become like um, not as as quaint and kitschy as you want it to be, because everyone descends on this town over the same six week period. I saw like a TikTok uh, the other day where like a there was like a huge line outside of a restaurant and like a manager came out and was like yelling at the line. It was like, if you're going to be rude to my servers, get out of the line. We don't want you. So like, he's got to, he's got to crack down. And, and I kind of got the vibe that a lot of the town has had to do that. Yeah. So is, is your question kind of around, is it, you know, a tourist? Is it or- as bad as everyone has made it out to be? <laughs> yeah. So I will say, um, the reason we went to Salem had a good friend from college in town and she's not from here. And back when we were planning her visit, I, you know, I was like, you can't come around, you know, Halloween and not come go to Salem. Like you have to go to Salem. Um, I feel like if it's not on your bucket list. Like you just need to experience it once in your life. Is it touristy? Yes, totally. Is everything. I mean, we paid $50 to park in a garage for a few hours. It was just like, they're like, even if you're here for 10 minutes, it's $50. Like, so yes, every, (laughs) keeping that in mind, um, there's going to be lines everywhere. There's all kinds of like commercialization of every sort of like Halloween event you can imagine. Um, lots of tattoo places, by the way, um, just a random aside, I guess like tattoos, psychics, tarot, you know, tarot card reading. Um, I, I felt like we got what we needed out of it in terms of, we got the culture part. Um, we, our big thing was to go kind of do a little bit of hocus pocus touring. So both all, everybody loved that movie. And so we walked around and saw like the ropes mansion and it's, I will say this, if you can get out of the commercial area it's a beautifully quaint town this time of year, you know, leaves changing. It's beautiful. So um, the things I would recommend, you know, go to the Peabody Essex Museum, take in like some of like the history, like I said, of the Salem witch trial, understand that a bit more. Um, You know, if you're feeling more like the culture piece, I, you know, walk around and you can experience it, but try not to eat and try not to park there. That would be my. (laughs) Get in and get out, huh? (laughs) Exactly. Do the culture, but then go like stop on your way home somewhere to eat and maybe take the train to Salem itself. I mean, we were there and it was like torrential downpour and it was packed. Um, So that gives you some context. But um, but yeah, I definitely I I think it's a bucket list thing. I think you need to experience it in your life um, to go there around Halloween. 
Cool, cool. Thank you for for giving me a firsthand account because I was I was curious, and then when I saw that in the notes, I was like, okay, I've got to ask her about this. <laughs> um okay folks we're gonna wrap uh beth thank you so much for doing this with me this has been a lot of fun watching this talking with you passing emails and notes back and forth we will have to figure out soon what the next one will be um because this is a collaboration for, for you know both sites i'm not gonna run through all the places that you can find us you can just click on any of the links in the description of this episode if you're listening to it on on one of our sites you can also listen to it on spotify apple wherever you listen to your podcast um, it's going to be everywhere. Uh, happy Halloween, folks. Happy Halloween, Beth. Um, and uh, we have finally reached the end of spooky season, which means we can talk about regular things, at least on our website. Thanksgiving thing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thanks, Patrick. I appreciate um, you know having this opportunity to collaborate with you. I look forward to doing more podcasts. And um, yeah, happy Halloween, everyone. Cool. All right. Uh, thanks folks. And, uh, we'll catch you next time, wherever that may be.